Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. And of course, if this is your first time listening or you just recently started listening to us, thank you very much for putting us on. You can send us any suggestions for episodes or thoughts on this episode on email, thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com or we're on social at IT Women's Podcast. Do get in touch. We love hearing from you. Now, today we meet Georgia Harrison, who went from being a reality TV star to a campaigner to change the law around image-based sexual abuse, or as it's more commonly known, revenge porn. One thing led to another and we ended up at his and we ended up having sex, which, you know, was something we've done multiple times in the past. So to me, what was the worst that could happen in my head was we just wouldn't, nothing would come of it and, you know, it wouldn't be a big deal. I'm not in love with him. He's not in love with me. But little did I know, he had CCTV cameras around the parameter of his garden and his kitchen Little did I know, like, when you look back on the footage, it's very obvious that he was manipulating the intercourse to be filmed at all different angles by the cameras and to ensure that it was all caught by the cameras. And we'll have more from the brilliant Georgia Harrison later. But before that, I want to mention the incredible Rosemary Smith, Irish racing driver who has died this week. I was lucky to know this wonderful woman, my mum, who ironically did not know how to drive a normal car, never mind a race car, ended up writing Rosemary's memoir, Driven. And Rosemary was just such a unique person, brilliant crack, forthright, fierce, strong, someone who broke barriers and didn't let anything stop her in what she wanted to do in life. She had extraordinary success in a field that is still mostly dominated by men. President Michael D. Higgins said this week, Rosemary Smith should be remembered as one of the most fearless and remarkable Irish sports people to have graced the international stage. And from knowing her, I always loved the fact that she was a total glamour queen as well, this really tall, imposing woman. And at her book launch, she wore this striking pink outfit. And she was just one of those people who commanded and got attention in every room. I'm so sorry she's gone. The one good thing is that she really wanted her life story and the story of her amazing career told. And it did get told. So if you want to find out more about this pioneering woman, Rosemary Smith, you can read her story in Driven. We'll miss you, Rosemary. And also before we come to Georgia Harrison, I'm conscious that we haven't so far on the podcast done anything on Gaza and Palestine and Israel and the horror that has unfolded there, the Hamas attack on October 7th and the subsequent bombardment of Gaza. And needless to say, we on the podcast and you, our listeners, have been horrified by what's going on in Gaza and in Israel, the ongoing genocide, the sheer inhumanity of it all. And we've been thinking about two women in particular from Gaza who we had on the podcast back in 2019. They were with us in the studio, having been brought here by Trokra to talk about their lives in Gaza. They were activists Mona El Shawa and Hala Rizik. And here's a small extract from that episode. One of my uh, thing I was excited to come to Dublin and Ireland to exchange the experiences to speak to the Irish women, and also I hold all the voices of women from Gaza. To, to I I maybe I have the chance to speak on behalf of them to let you know about our suffering, our pain, about our human uh, being. You are we are normal people. We have dreams. We have hopes. We have, uh, we want to, de- to live in dignity. And I do believe also women are women wherever. You can understand us because we're sharing the same pain. 
We've recently been trying to get in contact with both women to talk about what they are going through, but we haven't managed to contact Mona. But Hala has responded through Tokra to say she'd like to speak to us again. But obviously at the moment, given the renewed attacks and the issues around telecommunications, it's too difficult. We do, though, hope to speak to her at some point soon and to make contact with Mona also In the meantime, the Palestinian Feminist Collective, which is based in America, put out a statement this week that was really strong. And I wanted to quote a bit of it here, if that's okay. They said, Palestinian women and children are 70% of those killed and continue to suffer unspeakable harm by this war. Palestinian boys and men have been falsely portrayed as bloodthirsty terrorists, rapists and savages to justify the genocide and collective punishment of the Palestinian people. In Gaza's population of 2.3 million, approximately 572,000 are women and girls of reproductive age, all of whom require access to vital reproductive health services. Among them, 50,000 pregnant women are caught in this conflict with thousands facing imminent childbirth under dire circumstances. The Reproductive Justice Framework, forerun by women of colour in the mid-1990s, advocates for the right to live and raise families in a safe and healthy environment. Genocide is in direct violation of this fundamental right and is therefore a matter of concern for all advocates for reproductive justice and freedom. We refuse to accept a world defined by destruction, dispossession and death. As feminists, our daily efforts are rooted in the pursuit of justice and the fundamental right to life for all people. This is needed now more than ever. Stop the genocide. Cease fair now. And that signed uh, a load of different groups across the world, but coming all together under an umbrella called the Palestinian Feminist Collective. And I think those feminist perspectives are really important. And I haven't seen enough sort of spoken about it or written about that, including on here. So I wanted to redress that. And I know thoughts and prayers are not going to do anything to help with the ongoing genocide in Palestine. But for what it's worth, our thoughts are with everyone in Gaza, especially as previously mentioned, Mona and Hala, who we hope to speak to again soon. Now, Georgia Harrison has been a reality TV star in a programme called The Only Way is Essex, or Towie as you might know it. She's been on Love Island and other shows, but she's now become a campaigner after she was a victim of image-based sexual abuse, which is the much more accurate phrasing for something we've come to know as revenge porn. Her ex-boyfriend, also a reality TV star, Stephen Bear, shared a video of them having sex that had been made without her knowledge or consent and which he had published against her wishes on the OnlyFans website. And it was subsequently shared on platforms all over the world, which, as you can imagine, had a usually negative impact on her life and her health, especially her mental health. The video was made in August 2020 and in March of this year, the case in which Georgia waived her anonymity came to court and he was jailed for 21 months and he's serving out that sentence at the moment. The case was usually significant, sending out a message to perpetrators that this kind of image-based sexual abuse would be taken seriously by courts and giving hope to other victims that they would be supported. I spoke to Georgia about what happened, about her campaigning and about how she managed to heal from this horrible experience. Here she is, Georgia Harrison. Georgia, your book, Taking Back My Power, tells your story of becoming a victim of image-based sexual abuse, which is also called revenge porn, which that is very inaccurate. And maybe we'll talk about that a bit later. Um, First of all, we just want to say we're so sorry you went through everything that you describe in your book because it's really difficult and very um, brave and courageous of you to take it to court. But first of all, tell us about Stephen Bear and how he first came into your life because you were both on the reality TV circuit and your lives sort of became intertwined, I suppose. Yeah, so I mean, we've always both been in the reality TV circuit and probably knew of each other, um, but only as like acquaintances, really. Like we'd just say hi if we were in the same social groups and things like that. But I have been living in my flat from like the age of 18. And at the age of 23, I went out to walk my dog one day and I saw Bear pull up in like his like Mercedes, like being really flash. And he sort of like hung his head out the window and he was like, you're right, what are you doing here? And I was like, oh, I live here. And he was like, oh, I've just moved into the house opposite. 
And I was like, oh, that's so weird. Like, I guess I'm going to be seeing you around then. And, you know, we live in, like, Loughton. There's no other reality stars, really, living on our road. So that seemed a bit odd. And then, you know, about a week later, I'd been called to go on a show called The Challenge. And it's like an American TV show where you do all of these crazy stunts. And, like, I'd never watched it before. And to be honest, I just had no other opportunities on the table at that time. And I just was taking a stab going there because my agent was like, look, you've got nothing else on the table. Like what is there to lose? And I was like, you know, you're right. So I go to the airport and they take our phones off us and they tell us we're going to be flying to Namibia for eight weeks. And Bear was there. So we literally went from moving in opposite each other to a week later having like no communication with the outside world and being on a plane to the middle of the desert in Africa. And tell us about your impressions of him then as a person and what happened because you became romantically involved. Yeah, I think, like, as soon as I met him, I thought he was really funny, really cheeky. He was my type, which never ends well. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Never ends well. And we just, yeah, we were really flirty from the moment we met. And I just thought he was a really great soul. Like, you could always tell when he was in the room, he had a very high energy and he had a great way of entertaining people and, I guess, specifically women. And, you know, looking back now, I realised that He's just very good at making women fall in love with him. But, you know, at the time, I just thought we had a really good connection and we ended up being romantically involved for about six weeks until he went home. But it was in a very, very high-pressure environment, you know, where we didn't really know anyone apart from each other and, like, two British people. And we were together 24 hours a day and we were just doing really surreal things, you know. We were getting put on, like, monster trucks in the middle of the desert and having to swing between them. We was having to have fights in pits with these, like, random American people with, like, gum shields and helmets on. And, you know, our relationship grew very intensely and very quickly because of the environment we were in. Yeah. And then when you came back, uh, did that continue or did you kind of lose touch, even though you were living across the road from him? Yeah, no, so, like, we didn't end up being in, like, a serious relationship. But for the next couple of years, we were, like... Friends, sometimes it would cross the line as more than friends. Usually when we were filming, because we went on to film, like, another series together. But I think, like, when we were in the real world, I always knew that he wasn't the sort of person that was going to hold down a relationship. And uh, by the looks of the girls that he were dating, by the time I got home, I was far too old for him. So (laughs) it was always just friends. But, you know, we had a very good friendship. And we had, like... Yeah, we spent a lot of time together. So I really did think that we had a mutual respect and love for each other. Okay, so let's go to August 2020. And he invited you over for a cup of tea. You thought you said what could go wrong, but you had no idea what was going to actually transpire, which would actually change your life in lots of ways in the next couple of years. We'll talk about that. Tell us about that day. So a cup of tea, what did it turn into? (laughs) I mean, it's mad when you look back on it now. And the last time I saw him was about a year before that. And I said that I would never, ever speak to him again because he'd really upset me. But What had he done that time, Georgia? He locked me out of a room that me and him were staying in together to sleep with another girl um, when all of my stuff was in there and I'd been bitten by a monkey that night. Sorry, this is in Thailand, is that right? This is in Thailand, yeah. So I I almost had to sleep on a sunbed and it was mad. He went from, like, being completely obsessed with me to just looking at me like he didn't even know me on the evening that we were out together. And then he just disappeared with this girl and took her back to our room and locked me out. And it was like, you know, I I knew the vulnerable situation I put myself in when I, I was with him anyway. So... Sometimes I look at look at it and I'm like, look, if he'd have just got with another person, I couldn't really blame him because I know what he's like. But, you know, to lock me out like that when all of my medication's in there and he knows that I'm, like, really reliant on being in that space on that evening was just so harsh and so savage and I couldn't believe he'd done it. And, like, the next morning he was acting like none of that had happened and he didn't know what I was talking about. The, the whole situation was just completely insane. Like, the way he was trying to gaslight me the next day was, like, just, like honestly crazy like I was looking at him like I can't believe that you I don't know there's something wrong with you you know there must be something wrong with you to act this way and it was so confusing for me but yeah so I said I wouldn't speak to him again and about a year later we ended up talking a bit in the evening um and then the next morning he was like look why don't you just pop over and you know I think I hadn't I hadn't really like been with anyone in terms of like men for a while and I was definitely feeling lonely at the time. And you know what it's like when you end up with someone who you've been with in the past 
they just know how to make you feel good about yourself. And like sometimes that feeling can be so addictive, you know, even though you know it might not turn out to be real love, you can just really enjoy feeling that way in the moment, especially with an ex-partner. So, you know, it was started off a cup of tea. I was in my gym wear and then he ended up saying, oh, would I come with him to get the car cleaned? So then it's just like an innocent car wash. And then he pulled over to like a lunch spot and was like, look, let's just go for lunch. Come on, it'll be fun. And I'm like, you know, I'm literally wearing Nike gym wear. Like, I can't even go in that restaurant dressed like this. And he was like, come on, like, stop being so boring. That's what he'd always say to me, you're boring. So we ended up going for lunch and then we started drinking, which was a terrible idea as well, looking back. And one thing led to another and we ended up at his and we ended up having sex, which, you know, was something we've done multiple times in the past. So to me, what was the worst that could happen in my head was we just wouldn't, nothing would come of it and, you know, it wouldn't be a big deal. I'm not in love with him. He's not in love with me. But little did I know he had CCTV cameras around the parameter of his garden and his kitchen. And he had, like, purposely put cards outside on the table of the garden as we got back and was like, you know, why don't we go outside and play some cards like we used to? And we always used to play this card game when we were on the challenge. It was our thing. We'd play it for hours because you've got nothing else to do. Um, and I thought that was really sweet and, like, quite nostalgic. And that's where we started having sexual intercourse was where the cards were on the table and it went on for about 20 minutes around the garden, which was like positions that he put me in and then into the kitchen. So little did I know, like when you look back on the footage, it's very obvious that he was manipulating the intercourse to be filmed at all different angles by the cameras and to ensure that it was all caught by the cameras. Um, and then he told me about, I think like 40 minutes after something like that, oh, you know, I've just realised, babe, um, we might, like, a bit of that sex might have got caught on, on my cameras. And I'm like, you know, I need to see that. I'm like, you know if you're having sex in front of a camera that you own. Like, I could understand one or two minutes you're in the moment and then you're like, oh, whoops, do you know what I mean? But 20 minutes where the whole thing's filmed and I've got no idea the cameras are there. And, you know, I was still quite drunk at the time and, and still in a position where I did trust him to some degree like I thought he had respect for me and I also thought that he valued his own career because he was still on television and stuff like that so although obviously I was very upset by what had happened part of me believed that he'd just done it for his own benefit um and that it was going to go away and he really gaslit me and sort of the more I would like push on how serious what he'd done was the more he was making me out to be like someone that was over-exaggerating, someone that was crazy, someone that was being ridiculous and, like, you know, sort of giving me the impression as he's been with all these really famous, sexy girls, why would he want to, like, purposely film me? Like, he started making me feel like I was almost, like, bigging myself up, you know? Like, oh, you're not even my girlfriend. It was all of this really, like, like confusing situation and... You know, I ended up staying there that night and he managed to, like, convince me that I had nothing to worry about and the footage wasn't going to go anywhere. And when I got home the next morning, the first thing I'd done was, like, text him saying, you know, no one can ever see that, you know. It's not something that I ever want anyone to see. And I told him the night before that I would get the police involved if that was something that did come to light. Like, I was very clear about what the repercussions would be if he shared it. Um, and then it just went away, like, for about three months. Everything was fine. Me and him ended up being in contact again in the future. I went to his sunbed launch, and I really believed that it was just something stupid he'd done, and it was going to stay between us and go away. Um, but then I started hearing from people that they'd been shown it by him, um, and it was just so awful. It was like I felt so out of control of my own destiny, and I felt so much... Fear. And every time I would try and say to him, you know, I've heard a boy has seen this video. I'm not being funny. I've never done a video like that in my life. There's only one video that exists of me in, se in a sexual, in having sexual intercourse, and it's the one you've got. So these boys aren't just describing something that doesn't exist. He would still just tell me that, you know, I was making it up and like these people were lying or that I was crazy. And I even ended up reaching out to one of his family members and saying, look, this has got so out of hand. And I don't want to call the police because I feel like then I'm going to blow it up and it's going to become public knowledge and it's all just going to get out of hand. 
like, please, can you speak to him? Because I don't know how else I can put a stop to this. So then the family member also reassured me it was going to go away. And then I started just, you know, thinking, look, if he was going to do it, he would have done it by now. Surely he's not stupid enough to send it. Maybe he's just showing people, which is still disgusting, but still won't get to the point where, like, you know, my family find out about it or the people that I work with or ex-partners, future partners. They That was, like, my biggest fear. And then one day I was in Dubai and I just got sent a screenshot of it from this fan of the challenge. Um, it was, like, a fan page who I've spoken to a lot in the past and they are based in the USA. So as soon as I saw that, I was just, like... Like, my heart just completely dropped and I was like, this is this is it, do you know what I mean? It's not even, like, a person from around the area that we know. This is, like, global. So, Georgia, this was the moment that you realised that he had clearly published it somewhere yeah. that, you know, the world could see it. So that feeling of realising that millions, potentially, of people had seen that video, that you had always had this growing fear that this would happen. And that was, well, it must have been so overwhelming. And you're in Dubai with friends or? Yeah, I mean, I was with uh, Kaz Crosley from Love Island and Ellie. There was a few of us living out there at the time. We was living there for about six months. Um, but my family were all at home. And what was that like? How did you react? It just really came in waves. And it was like, I was just so angry at the time. And I was just so fed up of like being bullied by this person. Like, like, it just really made, it triggered me and it made me want to stand up for myself at first. Um, but I still didn't know, like, where it's coming from because the account then got deleted. And I was just like, look, it's out there. It's, like, ready to blow. I need to just figure it out. And that's when I went on my Instagram and was like, look, if anyone's seen a video of me and Bear in his garden, can you send it to this address? Like, I didn't say it was, like, a porn video or whatever. I tried to underplay it just in case because, like, I was thinking, right... I'll get the evidence, I'll contact the platforms and I'll get it off. Um, But within that, there was just like hundreds of messages to this email address with all different links of where it was. It had already gone to Pornhub by that time. Like the amount of platforms it was on without me even having a clue was just like shocking. But because I then put that on my Instagram, people then started sending it to each other. And that's when people were finding the link and it was getting sent to friends, family, everyone. And my phone was just pinging like every two seconds. Have you seen this? Oh my God, I've just been sent this of you. Like ping, 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 ping. My Instagram went up to 72 million views um, and I've only got a million followers. So everyone was like going on my page to see like my reaction to everyone seeing it. Um, And it was just, it was horrible. I didn't know how to cope with it. I just really went into a sort of grieving stage, I think. Yeah. Um, Tell me about your family, because I know your mother has been really, really supportive and important in this whole process. But like, you know, the the thing of having to explain to uncles and various relatives that this was going around. Did you have to do that and talk to people and say, you know, this is what's happened? It must have been really difficult. Yeah. The first thing I done was like write out a really long uh, message and sort of sent it to a lot of the people in my family, just sort of explaining like, what's happened um, and what I've been going through. And I think for a lot of them, they they were all so supportive. There wasn't one of them that wasn't. And I think, like, the only thing they felt bad about was the fact that I hadn't told them prior to it becoming this much of a big deal. Um, but obviously they understood that I just... I really hoped that it wouldn't come to that. Um, but none of them judged me. Like, they all know that, you know, I'm not the sort of person to sleep around. And even if I was, it's, it's not a bad thing to do like the only thing that is bad is to you know film people when they think that they're in a private scenario or to share things that are meant to be private without consent yeah because this might be a good time actually to talk about the word revenge porn I mean I I'm really um been someone who's been speaking about for a number of years about uh, child porn is some is a word I think shouldn't be used it should be called sexual images of child abuse which essentially is what it is and this is also sexual abuse through images too yeah um and the the word revenge porn does seem to imply that someone like you you know uh, you know, well, you've got yourself into this situation or somehow you deserve it. But it's it's really good to see that that word is becoming less common, I think. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm not personally triggered by that by that word. To me, it's just a terminology, but I can understand how other survivors find that offensive. 
and I've got quite a thick skin, so when it comes to things like that, don't really, I don't really overthink it too much. But okay. yeah, I think I think for many other survivors that I speak to, they don't like it being one revenge because it implies they've done something wrong, and two porn because for a lot of them, you know, well most of them, it isn't porn. It was just home videos or videos they didn't even know were being taken. But yeah. It's not something that triggers me personally. Yeah, but it's good that the language is is making sure that it doesn't trigger other people, even if it doesn't trigger yeah, you, which is great. Yeah, and I try now not to use that term because I'm, I'm aware that it can upset some people. And I, and I yeah. say image-based sexual abuse, even though it's a mouthful. <laughs> but it's very accurate. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So listen, tell me about the process of reporting it to the police and how big a decision was that? It's great to hear your family were so supportive um, and, and that must have helped. But, you know, it, it, some people might think... Right, I'm just going to hope, you know, just have to put my head down, hope it goes away. But you had even said to him on the night that this was a road you would be happy to go down, didn't you? So was it was it a no brainer to go to the police and make sure that it was um, dealt with? Yeah, I think like once I realised it had been on his verified account, it was just like absolutely go to the police. Like I've got all of the evidence I need. So there's like no other, no other option for me now. Like I think if it had been leaked via someone else I would have been more reluctant because I would have been like how am I going to prove it but I just had so much proof and yeah I just I really wanted to put a stop to him not just for what he'd done to me but just the way that he was beginning to treat women in general like he was becoming a real just sexual deviant and like I feel like he just would have gone on to get worse and worse and the more he got away with the more out of touch with reality he got and the worse his actions became. Did you have any contact with him around that time? He messaged me on Instagram saying something like, look, I know you're upset. Um, can we just meet up and speak or something like that? And it's like, I, you, you know I'm upset. Like, are you joking me? Like, look at what you've done. Like, this is like millions of people have seen this. We're not talking hundreds. And, you know, part part of me went through my mind of, could I meet him to speak to him to try and get proof that he'd done it? Do you know what I mean? Like, those things go through your mind because he was so adamant that I wasn't going to win in a court case on his, like, Insta stories and stuff. So I was, like, sort of thinking, could I even, like, record him admitting it? Do you know what I mean? But, like, in my head, I was just like, no. I just completely ignored him. And I just thought, I'm going to completely just leave this up to the police now and hopefully... The universe orchestrates it so the truth comes out and karma is served. And that is what happened, luckily. But yeah. he was so blase about it. Like, I know you're, you know, you must be a bit upset. Like, he'd just come over <laughs> and spilled a drink on my new carpet. <laughs> um, it, it took two years for the case to go to trial. So, what was life like for you in that time? And what impact did the whole thing have on your career, your life, your just your health, I suppose, as well? Yeah, it was just the hardest period of my life. And like, coming out the other end of it now and being in the place that I'm at now really reflects to me just how much I was having to be resilient and just push through for so long. Um, I think just like the fact of being silenced for that long in such a public discrepancy was really, really tough for me. You know, not being able to stand up for myself, having to watch all of these brands just drop away and really just feeling like, you know, I don't understand why this is happening to me, but I really did tap into like a higher power and I had faith that if I could just spend that time healing and around my family and around my friends and doing everything I can to get myself over what I've been through, that I would come out the end, at the other end and everything would work out, which thank God it did. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Talk to me about the trial then, because we, we if you if you followed it, um, the story, people might remember him coming to court in like sort of fur coats with a Rolls Royce with a with his new girlfriend and acting like the player and the kind of this untouchable person. Like this was all a bit of a joke and there was no way he was ever going to be punished for it. What what did you feel watching his approach to the to the court case? I mean, obviously, it was offensive on like every level. But I've never had to appear in court before. And I think for the whole two years, I I built up so many fearful scenarios in my head, which obviously I tried not to hang on to. But it was like, you know, I've seen this man lie phenomenally. I really have. Like to me, to people we film with, to other women, like he is a born and bred liar. And in my head, I was like, what if he gets a really good suit? What if he turns up with this crazy cover story what if he'd been covering his tracks the whole time and you know he's gonna go in there and he's gonna really like flip it on me um and then I got sent the pictures of him in that Rolls Royce with the fur coat on smoking cigar whilst I'm sitting at home in my tailored suit do you know what I mean like petrified of what I'm about to walk into and when I saw it I was just like brilliant I was like he's not he's not gonna lie he's not gonna try and act like someone he's not he's literally on the doorstep acting like the arrogant twat that he's been for the last two years, to be honest. And if anything, it just made me feel a little bit at ease for what I was about to have to walk into because it was very obvious that, you know, he's not a good person and he's shown no remorse whatsoever. And yeah, he's you not speak about you and you're like a good person. He wants to I, be a villain. Yeah. And you speak about you in your tailored suit, which you, you did look that you looked every inch the kind of very, you know, serious person coming to talk serious stuff in court. But it must have been really hard because, you know, you've got you're sitting in front of a jury who are looking at screenshots of you having sex in this person's garden and you're standing there facing them while they're looking at those images. That must have been really hard. And I kind of really admire you for having been able to go through that. Yeah, I don't think I actually realised that's what was going to happen. But it's printed out in a book. So I have a book and they have the book and you get taken to all different pages and each different page was me in like a different sexual position. And it was like, you know, you just feel so exposed. Like it's bad enough knowing that people have seen it, but actually watching people watch it um, was really, really uncomfortable. But it was really uncomfortable for them as well. So I felt like quite a level of sympathy for them having to even be a part of that, you know, and it it takes like a a good level of bravery to step up as a British citizen and be part of what is a really tough process and manage to see the truth through things. But yeah, I, I think I cried a little bit during my second day of testifying just because it was just a lot and, and like a lot of it was like so much regret. Um, it all just sort of comes to that moment where I was like, look at where I'm standing, look at what's happened. And I was looking at that day with just such, you should have known better. Do you know what I mean? But look, I know now that that's silly and, and I would never have seen this coming. But like in that moment there, you almost blame yourself. You know, you're like, why did I allow this to happen? Yeah. And I mean, the other thing is that you were also at the time dealing with the recent death of two of your friends, one who died from leukemia and then Jake McLean, who died in a car crash. He was an on off boyfriend. So you were you were grieving for those as well, as well as dealing with this. It must have been almost impossible to do it, some to face it some days. Yeah. Like when Jenk passed, it was really hard for me. And he'd always been like so supportive of, you know, I'm going to smash it in the court case and you know, everything's going to work out. He always really detested him, as did Jake. But, like, Jake passing away was very sudden and obviously not something that we anticipated to happen. And it was only a few months before the court case. And it really, really just spun me. Like, it it really shattered my faith. And it was like, how much more can one person take and why is this happening? Um, And I really did, like, say to my mum, that's the first thing, like, during that week when I first found out, you know, your head's just not in a normal space and you can't comprehend anything. Like, the chemicals in your brain just completely change. And I just kept saying to my mum, like, I can't do the court case. Like, we're going to have to cancel it. Like, I'm not going to be able to do it. Let's just just get rid of it. Like, I'm not going to be able to have the strength after what I've been through to face this. And to go through such tragic losses, I'm like, 
bad things are going to keep happening. You know, what's the point in even trying anymore? What's the point in even trying to go into this court case if, like, the world can take away people that I love so much? What are the odds of it working out when I get there? And my mum just kept saying, look, we're not thinking about that now. We're not thinking about anything in the future now. All we're thinking about is getting through each day. And we've got a couple of months to figure out what you want to do and if you still feel like this when it gets to it then we will we'll just walk away from it because all that matters right now is that you get to a stage where you feel yourself again and you've you've accepted the things that you've had to go through Mm. well in the end you did persevere and bear was found guilty and sentenced to 21 months in prison how did you feel when that verdict was read out just like so, so relieved. Like it was really weird. I felt like I would cry, but I didn't. But all of my family were crying. And, you know, I remember looking at the jury and just sort of being like, thank you. Like, thank you so much for seeing through all of this. And just like, yeah, thank God my life, that's it now. Like my life's going to go up from here because if he'd have got away with it, I would have literally lost everything. Like, I don't know what the other option for me would have been. So... Yeah, I just felt relieved. And I think when I first reached out to the police, there was an ounce of me that was like, am I going to feel bad watching him go go to jail? You know, someone that I genuinely really cared about and spent years of my life getting to know. But I didn't feel bad at all. Not, I didn't have like a shred of guilt within me. I was just so relieved and I knew it was the right thing, not just for women within society that end up, in his presence but for himself I think he really needed to have a bit of a touch of reality to step away from this person that he was turning into because as I said it was only going to get worse it was getting deranged. Mm. You were also awarded damages of over £200,000 sterling which is one of the highest ever payouts in a breach of privacy case that was also significant wasn't it I mean I know that you weren't doing it for money but that is kind of shows how serious it was. Yeah, but I never actually received a penny of that. In fact, if any, if anything, I'm in the minuses from certain fees that I incurred um, during that court case, which is a real shame that that the I just can't believe the justice system allows criminals to hide their assets in the way that it does. Like he was allowed to sell his house on the day of the court case from the sex offenders wing. Like how how is that okay? And the only way for me to go down the route of recovering the funds could end up incurring far higher costs than I've already had to pay. And I just don't want to risk that. Like, you know, just having my career, my reputation and everything back is good enough for me. And even winning it was quite nice, to be fair, because at least he had to sell the house. But yeah, I never received a penny. Luckily, my lawyers were no win, no fee, and they were very supportive. But there was still um, certain costs that I had to pay along the way for that court case. So it's, it's a shame, really. It's just incredible that he hasn't had to give you any of that money, that the damages that he was um, ordered to pay. No, literally nothing. After the trial, you know, you kind of, you've become this campaigner and you actually did manage to get the law on revenge porn changed in Britain. Talk us through what you saw as a massive flaw in the original law around it. So what was a real issue was you had to prove that there was an intent to cause distress when it came to image-based sexual abuse and For me, because he had alerted me of the recording prior to posting it, we had multiple conversations where I made it implicitly clear that it would cause me distress and it would ruin my career. So I had a leg to stand on when it came to that, but that's very, very rare. And like so many people were reaching out to me with their own stories, their own experiences with the law. And so many women were like, you know, I got let down because of this. That's impossible to prove. And, like, for many of them, they would literally just have someone send them this link of this video on Pornhub, and they never even knew it was recorded. They didn't have time to have a text back and forth saying, oh, by the way, if you record us having sex and sell it online, I'm going to be really upset. Like, it was so stupid, you know. It's it's just morally wrong, and you shouldn't have to prove that, you know, anyone should know it's going to cause distress, full stop. And I just found it absolutely, like, crazy that in this day and age there could be such a ridiculous loophole and such an important law. And luckily, when I did highlight it, within seven to eight months, the British justice system took it really seriously and they could see exactly where I was coming from and they changed it. And, you know, everything's just evolving and nothing's perfect. And the law only came in in 2015. So 
yeah, it obviously still had some working out to do. And luckily they've done that, but... Well, I definitely think your your case must have had an impact here as well because it only became a crime um, image-based sexual abuse in 2021. And here it's a crime regardless of the intent to, to cause harm. Um, so which is which is great. And if the intent is actually proven, then there's an even larger sentence. So just to, to say that um, I, I imagine it must have had an impact as well in the legislation that came in here. I'm just reading from a piece, I think, in The Guardian. It's hard to overstate the impact of this case. Most victims of intimate image abuse never report the crime. They are teenagers too terrified of their parents' reactions, professionals who fear for their careers, parents who don't want their children or partner to know or anyone else who can't face walking into a police station armed with a link to Pornhub. Of those who do come forward, only about 4% will ever see a charge and a prison sentence is rarer still. I mean, that's the reality, isn't it, for people who are, find themselves in your situation? It is the reality and, and it's really upsetting to have to see so many women go through this and not be able to get a shot at justice. And for many of them, when their cases do get, when their cases do fall through, they're then deemed liars. So not only do they have to go through these awful experiences, they're then accused of being involved in this porn video, which they had nothing to do with. And they're, mm. then they're shamed for it. And that's why I really want to do everything I can to try and just make it easier to convict and try and make the rates go up, the conviction rates, because it's just so heartbreaking seeing women not get the justice they deserve. And just to say your video, is it still out there? Because the the platforms are also something that you're trying to tackle and how they deal with stuff like this, because can technically someone go and access this video still? Yeah. So, I mean, I found it the other day on a website uh, with 2.1 million views on it. And I contacted them multiple times and they just ignored me. Um, so in the end, I managed to get uh, the RP Helpline, which is one of the main um, image-based sexual abuse charities in the UK. I managed to get them to remove it, but it still took them a couple of weeks because even if you successfully convict a perpetrator, your footage doesn't then become illegal, which is just absurd. So it's illegal for an individual to publish it but it's not illegal for it to be on a platform. So you can't force a platform to take it off and they can still make money off of it and just sort of be like, oh, well, we didn't put it on there, which is ridiculous. And, and mine is still out there in certain places. So I'm still looking into hopefully eventually maybe getting some form of a fingerprint put on it where it can't turn up anywhere on the internet. But for now, I just sort of accept the fact that it's out there and you know, the only thing that's different for me from other women is everyone I ever cared about already knows about it. So I don't really have the fear of who's going to find out about it because I've got nothing left to lose. Yeah. I mean, you use the analogy of a, a drugs kind of crime where the drugs are seized after the person's convicted for drugs and you don't, you know, it's not like the drugs are still allowed to be around. And and, and yet the law doesn't say that that this video is now a sort of a a crime scene, essentially, and shouldn't be allowed to be on any platform. And for many women, the only way to actually stop it from going on certain platforms is to pay money, is to pay people in, in like tech departments to remove it. And like, it's just not right. Victims should have support in removing that footage. And if they did, so many more women would come forward because it would be worth it for them, knowing that they, they can sleep at night, not worrying whose hands that footage is going to get into. Yeah. Can I talk to you about OnlyFans a bit? Because Stephen Bear put it on his OnlyFans account originally. I think that's where it first was published. And it's a whole huge industry. And you've mentioned before that you have friends earning 80 to 100 grand a month, you know, showing themselves in their underwear, making a good living from this. It's very different to what happened to you, a whole different uh, scenario. But I just wondered what your view is on this whole explosion of OnlyFans and the fact that it, it's become this big uh, way for a lot of women uh, and men to make money. I think people should just do whatever makes them happy, you know, and I'm definitely never one to judge someone. That wasn't something that I personally would like to do. I wouldn't, I don't like the thought of someone having sex, paying for sexual gratification over me, you know, but for some girls, they actually don't care and they support their whole families with it. And they live really good lives with it and they feel that they're in control of what they're sharing and, you know, that, that works for their lifestyle. So I think there's definitely two sides to these subscription platforms and there's good and bad and all that matters is that they're run safely if people are going to do it because I think the larger porn industry was quite damaging for women from what I understand. Like It can be quite 
dangerous and they're put in scenarios where they don't know who they're going to be having sex with, where these people have been. They're, they're really, like, unsafe within their environment. So in some ways, subscription platforms give them the control of taking power into their own hands and they get to choose what they do and when they do it. So, you know, there's an upside to it, but also a downside and it just needs to be thoroughly regulated. And when you're making billions a year that shouldn't be too hard to, you know, implement a certain level of compliance. But I have to hand it to OnlyFans. Their evidence really did help me get my conviction. And they were the only platform that really did interact with the police to do everything they can to prove that something went wrong on their platform, but that it wasn't their fault. So, yeah, I yeah. can't really fault them there. Just going back to your campaigning, when when Bear was sentenced, there was a 56% rise in calls to the government's um, helpline on this in, in Britain. And your story has given women courage to do something if they become a victim. So are you now in the position where you hear an awful lot of stories from people and what are people and it's still going on? And, and do you think there's going to be a rise in convictions? And have you seen that change happening? I mean, it's really, really nice to hear that. And I'm hearing stories all the time. And I think one thing my case done was it validated their feelings and it validated the fact that they deserve justice and that something bad was done to them, especially for girls that filmed the footage or sent the pictures. So many of them didn't think that they deserved justice, but they all do. And it's really nice to see more people coming forward and doing something about it because, you know... It's a violation on a different level and no one deserves it. I definitely think we'll see conviction rates go up with the amount of people coming forward. And hopefully with that, we see cases go down because I think it's also going to highlight to the younger generation how painful it can be if you do share this sort of footage. Whereas before, it wasn't that spoken about, so maybe they would just send it as an innocent mistake. But now it's so heavily spoken about there is no innocent mistake when it comes to it. It's very clear that it's wrong. And that's why I think I'm hoping eventually that, that the government will put some form of funding into education in schools about this subject because it's not fair to hold people accountable when they haven't been educated in the first place. So it's definitely something that needs to be done. Like, I speak to so many teachers. Teachers always come up to me and they're like, Georgia, if you could understand how much of a problem this is, I'm dealing with it on a daily basis and I really would love something to be done about it and your case is really helping that. That's great. Now, we haven't talked about your background at all growing up in Essex, but I imagine when you were a little girl, you weren't uh, dreaming of becoming a political campaigner and I know you dreamt of becoming a reality TV star and you managed to make all these things on your list of things you wanted to do happen. You got, and you were able to buy your own flat in your early 20s. You did become a person on um, The Only Way is Essex, Towie, and you, you did become a reality TV star. Tell us about that and how, um, in a strange way, this is a whole other thing that you wouldn't have imagined as a kid, but you did actually manage to get a lot of things done that you wanted to get done as a very young woman. Yeah, it's so weird. Like, I, I believe massively in manifestation and I believe that I manifested going on Towie. And it's weird, when I was a kid, I used to love debate class as well. So that almost, and I used to always go to after school debate class and that almost ties into how I've managed to be able to elocute myself within these situations when it comes to campaigning. But, you know, I was like 12 or something. That's definitely not something I envisioned in my future. But, you know, my next list of manifestations were saying that I wanted to have my own documentary. Well, not documentary, my own show on ITV. Um, I want to have my own book. I want to be an inspiration to people. And I really want to use my platform to help inspire and raise up other people, specifically women. And it's so weird that even though I had to go through such a tough time to get to this stage, I did sort of, in a way, manifest all of it, just not in the way I I expected. So I think, guys, if you're going to manifest, maybe be a bit more specific. You know, you're much uh, younger than me, but it really is a thing, isn't it? In, in sort of your generation. Yeah. Manifesting. And tell you tell us a tiny bit more about it. Like, what does it involve? Is it just writing the stuff up on a wall or do you think about it a lot? Or? So it's based on a theory. Like, there's a lot There's a lot within quantum physics that, that supports the manifestation theory. And, and what it is, is like, everyone's made the same stuff. So like, humans made the same stuff as a table or a chair if you break us all down and... What we're all made of is atoms, which are them, atoms and molecules, which themselves are living organisms. And if you do certain things to them, they react in a way where they actually have a life force of their own. So there's been lots of studies to prove that actually a vibration is 
what controls the universe. So the frequency that you give off is the frequency you get back. And the frequency you tune into is what you receive. It's like a radio station. If you tune into KISS, you'll get KISS. If you tune into Capital, you'll get Capital. So if you are on the same frequency, if you are vibrating love, happiness, joy, that's what you're going to get back. And the idea of manifestation is you write down lists of what you want, but you can't just write it down and acknowledge that you lack those things because then that's more of a, I want that, but I don't have it. You have to write it down and you have to put yourself into the frequency that you would feel if you received those things. So into the love frequency, the happiness frequency, the frequency of being proud of yourself. And then you visualize those things and the universe will pair them back to you. And I genuinely believe it. And like, there's so, everyone knows someone who's just like so lucky, right? And you're like, how is this person so lucky? Like they're constantly just having good things happen to them. And then everyone knows people that are really unlucky and it's like, how can they have such a ratio of bad things happen all the time? And I believe it's because of our psyche and some people are just born manifestors and everything goes well for them and that's just the way that they believe the world is going to treat them. But some people believe that the world's against them and that things are going to go really badly for them and that tends to be what they attract. But it's not a bad thing because they can change their thought process. We're in control of our thought process. Our thought process isn't in control of us. So there's hope for everyone to live a better, happier, more fulfilling life. They just have to change the way they perceive the world. Right. I did not think when we started this conversation that we'd end up talking about quantum physics, Georgia. (laughs) Honestly, you'd have to Google it because there's some brilliant studies and they blow my mind, but I just wouldn't be able to relay them efficiently. You've done it really well. Sorry, you have. I mean, I I want to throw in, though, and I I know you wouldn't believe this, that when bad things happen to people, it's not people's fault. I mean, if people get sick or they have cancer or other things, it's it's not because they haven't given out the right vibes. No, it's not because they haven't given out the right vibes. And for some people, it's just their journey. Like, I really believe that souls pick their life journey when they come to this earth and we're all intertwined and there's some parts of our lives that are just meant to happen like my best friend was the most positive amazing boy ever and he still passed away from leukemia but when he passed away because he was the way he was it made so many of us want to live our lives to the fullest and be more grateful and be more happy and it had such a profound effect on hundreds of people and I believe that was his that was his life path But if you'd have seen him right until his final days, he was still so positive and so happy. And like, you know, even though he was going through such a tough time, he still had so many beautiful, magical moments, even right up until the final weeks of his passing. And, you know, why not try and be that way? Why not try and look at the glass half full if you can? He sounds like an amazing person and I'm so sorry for your loss of your both your, those very dear friends. Um, you talked earlier about it being a bit of a grieving process This since that moment when you realised what he'd done. Uh, how are you, where are you in that grieving process? Have you got to a point where you're, you've actually healed from all of it or is it still something you're working on? I've very much healed and I really do believe that our, the people that we lose are still there. Like since losing people close to me, I really just have such a connection with people from the other side and like they give me so much that they used to give me on earth in moments in my everyday life and like I can always tap into his strength and his energy when I need to and I really believe that I'll see him again I I believe that our our spirit guides always are there for us and they're helping us and they love being part of our journey on the other side and it's actually harder for us losing them than it is for them crossing over because they find it fun being part of our lives in a way that we can't see them and they know that they will see us again. It's only us that isn't aware of that. And like, I like to be strong for them because I really believe that they can see me and it hurts them more seeing me be in pain. You, you have to let that go. You have to grieve because it's so unhealthy not to. But eventually it gets to a point when you're like, right, I'm going to get out there now and I'm going to make the most of every second of my life because they would give so much to have another day on this earth. So who am I to waste it? And if anyone's listening and is a bit sceptical about all what you're talking about, the other side and spirit guides and all of that, do you mind the scepticism or people thinking, what is she talking about? No, everyone has every right to to believe whatever they want to believe on this earth, you know, and it's, it's whatever works for them. But that is what I believe. And I think for a lot of people, if you believe something, you can tap into it more. For people that don't believe, they won't see signs of those things and, you know, they won't be able to. Maybe just try and believe and maybe maybe (laughs) someone will pop up. 
Just finally, Georgia, you have done so much. I mean, when we, you look at the reality TV, that's kind of in some ways, like it's it's a valid career for a lot of people. You can make money, you can become famous. There's a sort of superficiality to that, let's say. But then what you've done with this political campaigning has is having meaningful impact in you, people's lives that is going to kind of ripple effect for a long, long time. So you've done so much. What else is there for you? You've had a documentary about it. You've had a book. Yeah, I really obviously want to move on from this situation specifically, but I definitely think there'll be more documentaries on the cards. I've been in talks with um, a few different members of production and I think it will be good to look into other people's stories. And honestly, once I changed the law, I did sort of want to hang up my campaigning shoes for a bit and just like go to Ibiza. But um, (laughs) (laughs) since I've spoken to the RP helpline and, you know, been made aware of the fact that really it's wrong that we can't get this footage off the internet and it is possible to change the law to make it so that does become immediately illegal. I think that's going to have to be my next campaign and I'm going to have to dedicate some time to hopefully getting that into change to help protect women more. And I just want to do what I can for people. I really want to be a good person and I really want to help other people. I believe it comes back to you and yeah. Um, and not that I want to dwell on him, but uh, Stephen bears, bears in prison. Do you feel like he's somebody who's going to learn from this and come out a different person? Or do you even think about that anymore? I believe there are good aspects to his being. And I think with the right help and support, he could rehabilitate himself and maybe be sober and just concentrate on those aspects within himself. But I don't know if he has that right support around him. A lot of his family seem to be enablers throughout the court case. And it's going to take a lot for him to change. But I think everyone has a chance. So I honestly, I pray for his... I pray that he manages to rehabilitate himself and be a better person and... Yeah, I really do. I don't I don't wish any bad for anyone, but whether or not he manages to do that, we will see, won't we? And I hope you're able to have healthy relationships now, romantic relationships, because I, ma- I imagine it must have damaged a lot of trust for you in men. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely struggle with my relationships, but I've still really got hope that I'll meet a good person. I'm just trying to not be attracted to bad boys, you know, I'm try- really trying my best just to call in someone that's a good person. And I've got a lot of faith that that will happen. Like, I think the stars will align for me eventually. Like, I've seen it work out for so many of my friends recently that really didn't think it was ever going to happen for them. And seeing them have such success really gives me hope for myself. So I just also just briefly love your insight on why that is that some women like yourself are so attracted to that um, in a man. And have you reflected on that a lot? Like, why was that something that you went towards instead of somebody decent who was going to treat you right? Yeah, I've done a lot of reflecting on it. And I just think, I don't know, almost like I guess it's the chase. It's the having wanting, wanting to be attracted to someone that doesn't quite show up for you. And there's a lot of women that do have those problems. And I think... You know, every relation, every bad relationship teaches you what you're looking for in the next relationship. And what I've done in terms of like reflecting on it is I've written a really big list of what I want in the next person, but more in terms of like, I've acknowledged what the past people didn't give me and I've turned that into a positive of what I want to look for in the next person. And I want, you know, someone who shows up for me, someone who's patient, someone who's loyal, someone who's honest, someone who's kind and... I've never before acknowledged the fact that that is what I need. And now when I am dating men or I am like speaking to guys, they'll do certain things which will show an element of them being patient or I'll see them do something honest. Or And I'm really finding those aspects very attractive now, whereas before I wasn't looking for those things. So I think that's steps in the right direction. I love to hear that. But I also think listening to you that you have grown so much yourself as a person that inevitably you're going to attract that now because you're much more sure of who you are, what you stand for, what your values are. And that's going to hopefully bring that kind of similar person into your life. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, it's been so lovely talking to you, Georgia, Thank really, you and especially about the quantum physics, which I'm going to go out now and have a, have a bit more of a closer look at. Yeah, um, but you're you're an extraordinary person and you've you've done something really important. And I know you'll continue to to do more things like that in your life. So uh, the best of luck with everything. And thank you. Um, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks. I really enjoyed this. 
That was Georgia Harrison there. Her book is called Taking Back My Power. And if you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please leave us a review or subscribe to us. It really makes a difference. The podcast is produced by Suzanne Brennan and by me, Roisin Ingle, with JJ Vernon on sound. Talk to us on social at IT Women's Podcast or email us on the Women's Podcast at irishtimes.com. That's it from me. Mind yourselves and I will talk to you next time. 